Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Well, good morning. How's everybody feeling today? Man, how can you not be excited on Fall Festival Sunday? So I haven't had a chance to make my way up there, but I know there's bounce houses, cotton candy, games. It's going to be a great, great time. So after service, we invite everyone to join us up in the upper parking lot for that. Uh, Now, today we are uh, starting to wind down in the series we've been in called Renew. And if you've been tracking with us, you know every week on the screen we have a number. You can text in questions. We set aside time at the end of each message to address the questions that you guys have. We even have an opportunity for you to raise your hand and ask questions as well. Um, So that'll be available at the end of the service. But just to give you a little sneak peek at where we're going over the next few weeks, um, this week and next Sunday, kind of wrapping up all the stuff we'd planned to talk about. But two weeks from today, the whole Sunday is just going to be Q&A. So I know a lot of you have sent in questions we haven't had a chance to get to yet, and we are not ignoring your questions. We're going to address all of those Um, And just two weeks from today. So as you're sitting there this morning, maybe you have a question that that popped up about something we talked about weeks ago, or maybe it's just even like barely remotely related to this series. That's totally fine. Go ahead and send those questions in to that text number and we'll get ready to go with Q&A Sunday in just a couple of weeks. Um, Now, one question you might be asking yourself is, Matt, we've been in this series. It's all about the story of the Bible and yet it's called Renew. Like, why didn't you call the series, like, The Great Big Story of the Bible? You know, and besides not being super creative, you know, I like that title. It just tells me what the series is about. But as I was thinking, at the end of this series, if you were to walk away with, like, a one or two-word summary of the story of the Bible, what would that be? And really, I think that word renew comes to mind. Because I think a lot of us maybe grew up in context where the, at least what we understood the story of the Bible to be is that the world is this broken place that's going to hell, literally. And so God is trying to save as many people out of earth and get them into heaven before this world is destroyed. And so we kind of have this idea that that we're on a sinking ship and God's trying to save as many people as possible. There's a couple issues with this way of understanding the Bible. Uh, One of them is that um, when that's our understanding of the story of the Bible, it really makes us live with kind of this cognitive dissonance. Like there's two different lives that we end up living. Because on one hand, we're going to wake up tomorrow and we're going to go to work. We're going to go throughout our business. Maybe you're an accountant or a teacher or a stay-at-home parent or a salesperson, whatever it is. And you're going to live your life. But if really the, the whole world's going to burn up in the end anyway, and what does it matter, uh, kind of think, okay, well, I live this life for me, but then on the other hand, I know that I have this life we're living today, right, our spiritual life, where I want to have a relationship with Jesus so I can go to heaven when I die, and so I have my spiritual life and kind of have my normal life, and really the two of them don't seem to fit together. But when we understand the story the Bible is telling, we realize we don't have two different lives. We have one life that's integrated, so everything we do here matters even into eternity. Now, the, the, another thing that's wrong with that other view of the Bible we talked about is, quite frankly, that's not the story the Bible is telling. And so we've been looking at that story. We said we could kind of divide it up into six different acts or movements so real quick, I want to summarize where we've been. I know some of you are like, I hate the summary part, and I get it. But the reason is I want to hammer some of this into our minds. Because even this week, I have a couple different groups of men that I meet with throughout the week for discipleship. 
And the same conversations that we are having on Sunday morning come into play in one-on-one conversations throughout the week. And so it's important for us to understand what the Bible's saying. Now, in Act 1, who remembers what Act 1 of the Bible is? We put the, we put the answer up on the screen for you. If you missed that one, I can't help you, all right? It is creation. And so at the beginning of the Bible, God creates the world to be his temple. So this is where God lives. This is where everything is the way he wants it. And the word the Bible describes for creation is that it was good. Like there's an abundance. It's teeming with life. There's more than enough to go around for everyone. And in this uh, creation, in this temple, God puts people to work on his behalf. These are priests, and they're named Adam and Eve. In fact, the way the Bible uh, phrases it, it says they are made in God's image. All right, now I want you to repeat after me. This is so important. Image is a job. All right, that was kind of lame. And I get it because you weren't sure what I was going to say or where we're going. So we're going to try it one more time. Image is a job. Oh, much better, much better. See, it's important for us to realize that when we're made in the image of God, being the image of a God is a job. It doesn't mean that we look like God, right? Because look around this room. There's some goofy looking people in this room. Not you, of course, just maybe the people around. Like, we all look so different. It has nothing to do with looking like God. It has to do with acting like him. We're supposed to image God. We're supposed to reflect his goodness and his glory back into the world. So everywhere there's disorder, we bring order. Everywhere there's brokenness, we bring beauty. In fact, the way that that the Bible describes it in Genesis 2 is that people were supposed to work in the world and watch over the world, to work and to watch. Now, this is where, like, as, as Bible nerds, we can really geek out because the Hebrew words that get translated work and watch in other places in the Bible, they get translated as worship and obey. Now, you guys don't seem as impressed by that as I was. But think about how radical this is. Because if worship is how we work in the world, then worship isn't what we just did for a few minutes by singing songs before a sermon. Worship is not when you're on your way to work tomorrow and you turn on K-Love or 104.7 The Fish or your Spotify playlist. Like, those things can be worship. But worship is the way that you live your life. Like everywhere you bring order out of disorder. Like so, so maybe tomorrow you're a salesperson and you go to work and you're really like meeting somebody's real needs that they have. Guess what? You working is an act of worship. You're a stay-at-home parent who's going to wake up in the morning and get kids dressed and pack those lunches. Guess what? Your work is worship. You are a teacher who's training up the next generation. Your work is worship. You're a student who's going to be learning and preparing yourself for the future. Your work is worship. Your whole life is worship. The question is not, are you worshiping something? The question is, what are you worshiping? Does the work of your life indicate that you're worshiping God or that you're worshiping yourself? Like, is the goal of your work to bring order out of chaos and beauty out of brokenness, or is it Build a big bank account so you can retire and live your dream life. Is it to just do enough work to get by so you can enjoy your weekend? What what is the goal of your life? So that brings us to act two, which was the fall. Because Adam and Eve, they were designed to be God's image, but instead they imaged the serpent. They imaged themselves. Instead of doing what God wanted, worshiping and obeying him, they, they worshiped and obeyed themselves. They wanted to decide what's good and evil, what's right and wrong. They wanted to be like God. 
And as a result, sin and death entered into the world. See, the problem the Bible is addressing is not that people are bad and broke some arbitrary rules, and so now they go to hell. Like the, pro- the problem the Bible paints is not that, that one time in third grade you said a cuss word and, and you offended God's holiness, and now you're going to hell. It's not that, oh, man, you had that lustful thought and that really offended God, and now you're going to hell. No, no, the problem the Bible is addressing is that we were designed to worship and obey God, and yet instead we're imaging and worshiping and obeying anything but God. And sin has kept us captive to imaging all these other things. And so God is looking for a people to be his image. Adam and Eve fail in that vocation, but he doesn't give up. He has a solution to this problem, and it starts in that third act or movement in the Bible, which we said was Israel. So in the Old Testament, God says, listen, Adam and Eve failed in their vocation, but I'm not just going to call two people. I'm going to call an entire nation. And the first time that we meet the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus, they're enslaved in Egypt. God sets them free. He delivers them, and then he brings them to a mountain where he wants to enter into a relationship or a covenant with them. And in Exodus 19, verse 5, this is what God says. It says, now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant. In other words, if you want to stay in relationship with me, then you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom. Everybody say kingdom. Of priests. Everybody say priest. And my holy nation. Everybody say nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. So he says, if if you enter into a relationship with me, you're going to be my special possession. You're going to be a whole kingdom full of priests. You're going to be holy. We talked about last week, that doesn't mean pure and undefiled and righteous. It means set apart. You're not ordinary. You're going to be different. Like, I want you to enjoy my love, like be in that covenant relationship, but I want you to embody it. I want you to enjoy heaven on earth, but I want you to embody it as well. So what does it look like to embody God's love, to embody heaven on earth? Well, God gives commands to tell his people what that looks like. What does it look like to be a kingdom of priests? And so we have, you know, some commands that are kind of the strange ones that really were just to keep Israel distinct, like don't eat shellfish or don't wear clothing with mixed fabrics. That's, again, just saying, hey, you should look different than the rest of the world. But then there were those commands that showed like fundamentally how heaven on earth should look different from the way things ordinary work. And so they say things like uh, every week, take a day off of work. Not only that, but every few years, set slaves free or return land to its original owner. Forgive all debt. Don't have a king. Don't store up possessions. Don't have a massive military. Trust me to be your source of power, your protection, your provider. And so Israel gets these commands to help them be a kingdom of priests in this holy nation, to be God's kingdom. But they're very creative and find new ways to break those commands. And so God gives a few more commands to clarify, and they break those. And then there's a few more. So you get 613 commands in the Jewish scriptures or our Old Testament. And make no mistake, the commands in and of themselves are not bad. They're not wrong. They were a gift from God to show his people how to be his kingdom here on earth. But after centuries of God being patient and begging his people to enter into relationship, they refuse, they refuse, they refuse. So God says, I'm not going to force myself on you. He removes his protection. Their enemies come in and conquer them. At the end of the Jewish scriptures or our Old Testament, the question is, okay, we've been conquered. 
God's kingdom on earth is gone. Will God's kingdom ever come back? Like, is there any hope for this world? And the prophets say yes. Because here's the thing. The, the commands, although they were good, they couldn't address the fundamental issue is that what people need is not more commands. They need a heart change. They need a life transformation. And so one day God's kingdom is coming back. Heaven will come to earth. And this time it will be led by a leader who will bring about that change from the inside out, which brings us to act four, which is Jesus. And I always struggle with this because like we could talk for the rest of our lives about Jesus. And I got to summarize it in like 45 seconds, his whole ministry. But when Jesus came, it said he came announcing the good news that the kingdom of God was here. Jesus came to bring heaven to earth. He came to do what Adam and Eve could not do, what Israel did not do. He came to show the world what it looked like to live how God intended us to live, free from imaging other things. And so he taught us what that means. Things like, well, don't hate your enemies, but love them. Right? Don't, don't badmouth people you disagree with, but actually speak blessing over them. When people attack you violently, don't respond with violence. You know, we should live lives that are totally generous. We should live lives connected to the Father. He gives us all of these commands, but he doesn't just give us commands. He actually does the work of bringing heaven to earth. Everywhere he goes, he's reversing the effects of sin and death. He's healing sicknesses. He's casting out demons. He's raising people from the dead. And what thanks does Jesus get for bringing heaven to earth? Well, one of his closest friends betrays him. He's murdered. But then three days later, he rises again. And there's so much that could be said, but here's what I want you to take away for today. When Jesus died on the cross, he set aside the old way of being a part of God's kingdom. Because old ways, you had to be born into the Jewish nation. But when Jesus rose again, he said, now there's a new way. You can be born into the kingdom. You have to be born again by following him. Does that make sense? Like I grew up and it's like a born again Christian. And I thought that just meant you prayed a prayer and then Jesus came to live in your heart, right? And, and the Bible never says that Jesus lives in our heart when we say a prayer, okay? And there's nothing wrong with that. But what the Bible does say is that when we follow Jesus, we're born into this new kingdom. We have this new citizenship. There's this new place that we live. Like we live kind of in the same place because we, a lot of us live in Woodstock or the Woodstock adjacent area. But then we're also living as members of the kingdom of God. Which brings us to Act 5, where we've set up camp for the last few weeks, and that's the church. Because this is where we are in the story. We're part of the church. We said this last week, church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means the called out ones. We've been called out of the world for a special purpose. And what is that special purpose? It was the same thing for Adam and Eve to be priests, the same thing for Israel to be a kingdom of priests, the same thing for us. We want to enjoy God's love and embody God's love. Enjoy heaven on earth and embody heaven on earth. And we could have picked a number of scriptures to walk through. In fact, all the New Testament after the Gospels is just working out what does this look like? What does it mean to embody all of this stuff? And we picked 1 Peter because Peter was, uh, 1 Peter was written by Peter. I know, shocking, right? The uh, Bible namers were not the most creative people in the world. This is his letter. And if you've read the Gospels, you know that he followed Jesus. Sometimes he put his foot in his mouth. But as he grew older, he was really looked to as a leader and authority in the early church movement. And here he's writing to a group of Christians that's experiencing a lot of persecution. In fact, history lesson time 
Uh, how many of you remember Nero from, from world history? Anybody? Yes, no, maybe. Okay, so if you don't remember Nero, not a good guy, all right? In fact, uh, you could look and say maybe he was not, you know, quite as stable mentally as, as we would have hoped that he would have been. Um, so, for example, one thing that he did, he wanted to start a new building project, but there was really no place for him to build, so he decides, I'll just burn down part of Rome. And, of course, the fire gets a little out of control, and things don't go exactly how he planned. Now, remember, these are people's homes, place of business, families that are impacted by this fire. Now, can you imagine the mayor of Woodstock saying, man, we have a parking problem in downtown Woodstock. I know the solution to this. And he just starts lighting neighborhoods on fire in downtown Woodstock. We think this, per- this guy's lost his mind, right? Like that's an evil act. And so public sentiment turns against Nero. And of course, Nero does the responsible thing and deflects all the blame to somebody else, right? Like it's not a modern day problem with our politicians. Like throughout history, that's the default for people. And he says, no, no, it wasn't me. It was those Christians. You know, this new movement of weird people who say they, they eat the flesh and drink the blood of this guy who they said rose from the dead. It was them. They're the ones who started this fire. So all the public sentiment turned against the Christians And that resulted in persecution. And so you have these early Christians who followed Jesus because they believed he was bringing heaven to earth. And so they've left everything to follow him. And now they're being cut off from their family. They're being cut off from the marketplace. They're being arrested, imprisoned, sometimes even killed. Say, wait a second. Jesus said he's bringing heaven to earth. And right now the world feels like a lot of things, but it sure doesn't feel like heaven. And so Peter writes to these first Christians to encourage them not to lose hope. We talked about last week, you looked at the first 16 verses. He says, you have an inheritance that's coming. God hasn't forgotten his plan. And even when you don't see it, trust that he is still at work. He's going to bring heaven to earth. So in the meantime, don't forget your call to be holy, to be set apart. You're supposed to be different from the world. And that brings us to where we're going to pick up this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 17. Everybody good? All right. Just check him. Even if you weren't good, we were going to jump into verse 17. So I'm glad we're tracking. Peter says, if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through, uh, through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. There's a whole lot in these verses. But what Peter is trying to really drive the point home is, guys, Don't lose hope. Don't give up because you've been redeemed from the life you used to live so that you can live in this new creation kind of way. You've been redeemed. You've been bought back. This word redeem is not one we use all the time, but but, but one of the more common ways we use this if you have a coupon or a gift card. Because if you redeem something, you're exchanging one thing for something else. So, so back for my birthday, uh, the staff here um, got me a gift card to a local steakhouse. And um, it's not a place like normally like we can just go to because it's not the cheapest place in the world. But 
I remember we kind of sat down, and I'm looking at the menu, and I ordered the steak that had been dry-aged for 65 days, and, and then we ordered, like, some jalapeno-creamed corn and some, some Brussels sprouts that had, like, I don't even know what was on it, but it was so good. Like, we're ordering all this stuff. We're just having a great time, and then they bring the bill, and I have a heart attack for a moment. I'm like, Bethany, you're going to have to do some dishes. I don't know, like, how we can afford this. That's a joke, by the way. I would never ask my wife to do the dishes if we couldn't afford it. But then, then I pull out the gift card because all this was possible because someone else paid the price for my meal. And so I give them this gift card and they redeem it so that I'm not paying for this meal. I exchange something for something else. And what Peter's saying is Jesus exchanged his whole life so that you could be free from your former way of living. Like God himself died so you wouldn't be imaging other things anymore, that you could live in the freedom he's called you to live in. Like that's not a cheap uh, gift card. He gave up everything, so stand firm. He, He didn't pay with gold or silver. He gave everything he had to give. And so if Jesus gave everything for us, We have to remember that he gave everything to set us free. This is the life we've been called to live. Now, what does that life look like? Verse 22, it says, Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Listen, you've been purified by your obedience to the truth. So Jesus redeemed you, but now as you're following Jesus, as he is, as you're living as if he's king, Your life is being transformed. Like you're growing up to maturity and faith. And what is the evidence that you are being transformed and changed to be like Jesus? That is your brotherly love towards the people around you. He said, here's the evidence of spiritual maturity is that you love others constantly. Like that's a, a tall task. You know, it's easy to love people for a short time. Right, like in a few weeks, some of us are going to have family coming over for Thanksgiving. It's easy to love them for a few hours. It's easy to love them for a day or two. But after three days of living in the house, it ain't so easy to love people anymore. It's easy to love when you first get married and to serve each other. And yeah, honey, I'll pick up those clothes off the floor. Yeah, sure, I'll take out the trash tonight. But it's not easy five years in when you're still picking up the clothes off the floor and taking out the trash. Like love constantly. And this kind of love, this is not like a, I love you, boo. Like, not, no, 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 not that kind of love. This is a love that is sacrifice. It requires you to put other people above yourself. So, so here's how you know, have you loved someone, truly loved someone this week? then what did it cost you on your calendar? Where did you take time out when honestly you just wanted to sit at home and relax for a few hours, but instead you went to serve somebody else and to meet their needs? What did love cost you financially? 
when really you had plans for what you wanted to spend, but you knew it was easier to help somebody else out who was in need? What has love cost you? See, that's what spiritual maturity looks like. Listen, we, we know there, there's so many people in our church family right now who are having babies. I always joke that's like our church growth strategy. Like, just come here, start having babies. That, that's how, how we're going to grow our church. But I don't know if you've ever had experience with a newborn. They are so cute, right? I love them. They're so chunky, and you get to hold them. It's better when it's somebody else, because then when they have a poopy diaper, you get to hand them back, right? But I'm convinced that God designed babies to be so cute, because we'd kill them if they weren't cute, right? Because it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and they don't think, you know what? I know mom and dad have to get up in a few hours for work, and you know, I can wait to eat until 6 a.m. No, it's 3 a.m. They're hungry. They need it now. They need a new diaper. It's going to be now. Like, just very selfish. I mean, they're pretty rude, to be honest. You think about toddlers, right? I love toddlers. They're like walking bobblehead dolls. Like every toddler's head is like three times the size of their body. You can tell it in their clothes because their clothes are all stretched out from getting over the top of their head, but the rest of their body is kind of little kid size. I remember my kids being little and they're walking around like this. You're like, don't fall over and hit something. But man, toddlers are cute. Until they learn their first words, right? It's not mom or dad, is it? It's no and mine. No. All right, it's bedtime. Nope. You want to take a bath? Nope. Do you want to eat dinner? No. Can I borrow that? No, mine. My, everything is mine. They're very selfish. Again, cute, but selfish. And some of those things, like, we can kind of laugh about them, and it's okay. But it's not okay if you have a 30- or 40-year-old child whose favorite words are no and mine. It's not okay when it's a 50-year-old who whenever they need something, they need it now. No, because what we hope is that people grow up and begin to think outside of themselves. But I wonder when it comes to following Jesus, how many of us say, well, God, I know you want me to love them, but I just don't have time right now. God, I know I really should be a part of a group, but man, I just... That would require too much. God, I know you've called me to be generous, but I'm really saving up for this other thing. And I wonder how many times that it would be true that if we had conversations with Jesus, he would say, hey, I love you. It's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. You could be a Christian for 40 years and be a spiritual infant. It's time to grow up. It's time to prioritize others above yourself. Listen, I'm not saying it's easy. Listen, maturing is never easy. I've got a son who's about to start driving in a few months. It is not easy, right? Like, it's not a prayer request, but you can pray for that if you want to. Like, growing up isn't easy, but that's what we're called to do. What does that look like? First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. It says, therefore, okay, since you're supposed to love other people, put them above yourself, if that's what spiritual growth looks like, then rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. These are not random things that Peter's just naming off the top of his head. These all relate to how we treat other people. All right, so you want to love people? There can't be room for malice in your heart. The person you've been holding bitterness for for years. Can't have that happen. Deceit. Don't text them and tell them you're on your way when you haven't even left the house yet. Hypocrisy. Do you judge other people by their actions, but yourself by your intentions? 
Well, see, I meant to do this, but this is what they actually did. Envy. You just wish you had somebody else's life, had their spouse, had their house, had their job. Slander. Man, if people heard the way you talked about them when they weren't around, do you talk about them in a way that is loving and honoring and uplifting? Listen again, it's easy to love people we like. It's a lot harder to love our boss who keeps passing us over for that promotion. It's a lot harder to love people who've wounded us, who've betrayed us, who've hurt us. But if you want to grow up, if you want to be a part of this kingdom, you got to get rid of that stuff in your life. So it's like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word here, he just defined it at the end of chapter one. The word is that Jesus is king. And when Jesus is king, if that's really what our lives reflect, there ought to be some maturing. We ought to be growing up. If you've tasted that the Lord is good, if you know that Jesus is king, that ought to be reflected in the way that we live our lives. And now what Peter does next is brilliant because we have to remember that he wasn't writing this to individual people. He wasn't like, dear Bob, here's a letter for you, right? No, this was written to churches. And so up to this point, a lot of this applies to us individually. But, but uh, in the same way, like if you're coaching a sports team and you want the team to get better, like at some level, the, the individual players have to get better too, right? Like they've got to do some drills. They've got to get better. And as the individuals get better, the team gets better. Lou Holtz, famous football coach, used to say, I'm a lot better coach when I have a lot better players, right? And so there is a certain extent when we take individual responsibility. But now Peter's about to shift and say, but collectively as a church, this stuff can't define you either. Like, what does it look like for a church to become a kingdom of God? And that's the, the shift he makes in verse four here. He says, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. He says, as you come to Jesus to grow, Listen, you're coming to one who is a cornerstone. He's the foundation that the church was built on. And he kind of throws in that this cornerstone was rejected by men. So don't be afraid if people reject you as well. But he says, you guys come as spiritual stones, plural, and are being built into a spiritual house, singular. He's using this imagery of stones and houses and, you know, and I, you guys know I spend hours preparing for messages and you can tell by my illustration here this morning. I grabbed this brick from outside this building. Now, this brick in and of itself, it, it has a number of uses. I can tell you it's been used to prop open doors a number of times. It's been used to be a paperweight on occasion. I mean, and I guess, like, if you got locked out of the building, you could use this as a key of sorts, you know, just throw it through the glass door and you can get in that way. But in and of itself, no brick was designed to be by itself. A brick actually only serves its purpose when it's stacked together with other bricks. And I wonder how many of us are these living bricks, but for whatever reason, God wants to build us up into this house, but we're standing over here doing our own thing. 
say, well, last time I tried to be a part of a house, it hurt. I don't know if you know, bricks aren't exactly smooth, right? Some of them have rough edges. Some of you, well, not you, but some of the people around you, they have rough edges. And when God starts to stack them together, guess what happens? There's friction. There's discomfort. There's people that you don't agree with. There's people that's hard to love. But listen, part of God stacking you into a house is yes, because other people need you, but you need other people. The reality is we all have those rough edges that need to be smoothed off. And it is so easy. We live in a culture right now. We're a part of this house, and we find out that the brick next to us is a Democrat. Oh, we find out that the brick next to us, well, oh, man, they voted for Trump. We find out that the brick next to us doesn't have the same values we have. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to take our brick, and we're going to go home. But don't miss this. Look at what happens in the verses that follow. Verse 6. It says, for it stands in Scripture, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, so if you believe and you build your life on this cornerstone, good things are going to have, like, honor's coming. I don't mean you're going to have health and wealth and prosperity, but you're going to be part of this house that's going to stand the test of time. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word, and they were destined for this. So the very same stone that has been the foundation for us can become a stumbling block for somebody else. So when we don't follow Jesus, we don't understand, and it doesn't make sense. We think, well, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. But then I started to wonder, when our living stones aren't built together, if we're over here, are we just becoming a stumbling block to somebody else? Because here's what happens. We look at that building and we say, well, that doesn't look good. And there's brokenness and there's bad things that happen there. So I'm going to come over here and do my own thing. And then we get this epidemic of what I've called before. If you've been at Bridgepoint for a while, you know, I've called it Mean Girl Christianity. You guys ever seen that movie Mean Girls? She said, I'm not a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. That's what some people say. I'm not a regular Christian. I'm a cool Christian. I'm not, a, I'm not one of those weird Christians. Look, I watch all the same things you watch. I consume all the same media you consume. I tell all the same jokes that you tell. Put the same stuff in my body that you put in your body. I'm not a regular Christian. I'm a cool Christian. But then I wonder how many times somebody look at a singular brick standing over by itself and say, man, I really want to be like that. You realize the whole point is not to be a regular person. Like you get that, right? Like Jesus came to redeem us, to buy us back, so we get built into this new building, into this new house. The whole point is that we would be different, and yet too often we try to live lives that are the exact same. Why would anybody follow a, a Jesus who... Your life looks exactly like theirs. The point is to be different. In verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Where have we heard that before? Peter's quoting here, straight out of Exodus 19. And you've been called to be different so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You've not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Peter's reminding him the same mission that God has had since day one is the same mission he's carrying on through you and me today. To be priests. To worship and obey. Now, I love it because up to this point, I'm nerding out. All this is good. Peter's like, all right, I'm about to get practical. I know some of you are like, I'm ready for Matt to start getting practical. Verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. So he's kind of making a play on words here. They are strangers and exiles because of persecution they've had to scatter. He says, because you're strangers and exiles, don't give in to your sinful desires. But the same can be true for us. You know, we're strangers and exiles in this world. Like if you follow Jesus, we're a part of the Jesus nation. And I said this before, but the problem with a lot of American Christianity is a lot of us are more American than we are Christian. And we get tied up and we forget that we're ambassadors here. Like if if you were to go to Australia, let's say your work sent you to Australia for a year. You would get some kind of visa and you would live there and you would honor and obey all the rules of the land. But you're probably not going over there to start some great political movement to reform the nation. Why? No, it's not your home. And if Australia decided to go to war with New Zealand, I don't know why. Maybe they want to expand into Lord of the Rings territory. I don't know. But you wouldn't get involved in that war. Why? Because I'm, I'm going home. This isn't really my concern. And yet for some of us, we've tied up so much of our lives into the land that we live in. We forgot we're supposed to be strangers and exiles. We're supposed to be different. And he actually says, live such good lives that even though they slander you, even though they accuse you of starting fires and they say you've done things that you shouldn't have done, that even though they slander you now, they're going to give glory to God because of the life that you've lived. Then the very next verse, verse 13. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor, which by the way, was the emperor a good guy? Was he fighting for Christian liberty and freedoms? So wait, they're supposed to submit as to the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil, to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by making a social media post. Sorry, I read that wrong. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by sending a passive-aggressive text messages. Now, how do you silence ignorance? By doing good. He didn't say engage in debate. He didn't say, well, actually, mm, do good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Like, you've been set free from imaging other things. So stop imaging the world. You've been set free from having to worry about everything, so stop worrying. You've been set free from having to argue and debate and change everybody, so stop trying to change everybody. But now that you've been set free, it's not licensed to do whatever you want. You're set free from imaging other things so you can actually serve other people, so that you can love them. And what does that look like? Very practically, he says four things. He says, honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. I think that's funny. He's like, honor everyone, 
And in case you forgot, honor the emperor too. Is honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters and fear God. And you know what's interesting? I can tell that this is written a long time ago because this is written today. Here's what it would read. Love God, honor the brothers and sisters, and fear everyone else. Fear the government, fear the immigrant, fear the people who look, act, think, believe different. Man, I don't know. I see this shared on Facebook. It's like, did you know that the Bible says fear not 365 times? I'm going to be honest with you. I think it's baloney because I've looked it up before and I hadn't got to 365. Don't tell your grandma. I know it ministered to her spirit when she shared that little meme. But here's what I do know. It does say fear not a whole lot. Here's what I also know. You can't fear not until you fear God. And if God isn't the highest priority in your life, then guess what? You're going to fear every election. You're going to fear everything that comes down the pike. You're going to fear the next minute. You're going to fear CRT. You're going to fear all that stuff. But listen, that's not the, the, the nation and the kingdom we're living in. We're living in God's kingdom. He's the one we fear. He's the one we revere. He's the one we serve. And because of that, it's only because of that that we can honor everybody because I'm not fearful of them. And it's only because of that that I can love others because I don't see them as competition for resources, but I see them as fellow image bearers of God. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters and fear God. I don't know if we got a text in question, but if anybody has a question in the room, we can go ahead and if you want to raise your hand, you can. And Mr. Keith will bring the microphone around. And some of you are like, nope, I just want to get candy from the fall festival. And that's fine, too. Just leave it for just a moment. All right, that's fine. I get it. It's a lot to take in. I know people have been like, Matt, this series feels like drinking from a fire hose. So I know we're trying to go through the whole Bible in a few weeks. It's going to feel like that sometimes. But really, the goal is not to overwhelm you. The goal is to help you. Because we're called to be heaven on earth. You know what heaven on earth looks like is we stop viewing people as competition for resources, right? Because the world lives by this scarcity mindset that if you have something, that means I didn't get it. Oh, you got married? Well, that means there's one less person for me to find. Oh, they had a kid? Well, it's just a reminder that I haven't had kids yet. Oh, they got that promotion? Well, that means I can't get that promotion. We view people as enemies, as competition, but see, when heaven comes to earth, remember God's creation, it was good. It was abundant. There was more than enough to go around. So now we don't view people as enemies in competition. We view them as fellow image bearers. We view them as people made in the image of God, and we love them, and we honor them, and we fear God. And so I don't know where you're at today, but I know maybe for some of us, maybe the message Listen, I, I love you, and that's why I say it this way. But maybe for some of you, it's time to grow up. It's time to stop saying, well, I, God, I know you want me to love them, but do you know what they did? To me? Set the excuses aside. Stop telling God how busy you are. You can't be obedient because you're too busy. You can't be generous because you don't make enough. Stop giving him excuses. And instead, let's give him our hearts. Or maybe for some of you, you realize, I've been the stone. I've been kind of out here doing my own thing, just me and Jesus. Maybe today you realize that doing your own thing 
has led you to become a stumbling block for somebody else. And maybe today the call is simple. It's just get connected to God's building. How does that happen? There's no magical way. Remember, it's when we try to do some very practical things. There's growth track, which is a great first step to help you get connected here. Being a part of a life group is great. Serving is awesome. There's a number of different ways you can go, but here's what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like showing up on Sunday morning and leaving, not being connected. No wonder if some of us here today, God's not asking you to take a million steps, just taking you the next step. So whatever that is, I just pray that in this moment we'd be open. We're going to continue with communion. And as we do, just ask Jesus, Jesus, do I need to grow up? Where have I been making excuses? Jesus, where do I need to get connected? Who do I need to honor? Who do I need to love? God, how can I fear you more? All across this room, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we just come before you right now. We're thankful that you redeemed us. You bought us back, and I pray we would never take that for granted. I pray that you would give us a fresh passion and fire today to be committed to you in the face of whatever obstacles, whatever trials, whatever we're going through right now, that we would remain steadfast in you. That we wouldn't try to look like the world, but you would give us the courage to look and to be different. I pray for for all the areas that we've been immature and we've been holding on to. God, right now, would you help us to grow up? Would you help us to get connected? God, I know it's hard. I know there's people here today who have hurt and who have pains and who have wounds, but I pray you would heal those and those would not become an obstacle for them getting connected to your body. And I pray that as we sit with you right now, you would speak to us. Show us how to honor those around us how to love the brothers and sisters well and whisper to us what it looks like to fear you in our lives today. Because Jesus, we just want to be more like you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock. But we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.